This is the voice of the Narrated Puritan Podcast. I just wanted to give you a few observations, a little bit about this ministry, but the more of the concern that I see in evangelicalism, even in Reformed denominations at this time. I mean, even of those who have some good instruction about what regeneration is, what perseverance is, what sanctification is. First, allow me to give you a quote from the preface to The Grace and Duty of Being Spiritually Minded by John Owen. And if this is true in his day, and this is written in the 1670s, where does that leave us? He says, the first thing which I would observe is the present importunity of the world to impose itself on the minds of men and the various ways of insinuation in which it possesses and fills their thoughts. If it can attain this end, If it can fill the minds, the thoughts, and affections of men with itself, it will in some fortify the soul against faith and obedience, and in others weaken all grace and endanger eternal ruin. For if we love the world, the love of the Father is not in us, and when the world feels our thoughts, it will entangle our affections. The world is at present in a mighty hurry, and being in many places cast off from all foundations of steadfastness, It makes the mind of men giddy with its revolutions or disorderly in the expectations of them. Thoughts about these things are both allowable and unavoidable if they do not take the mind out of its power by their multiplicity, vehemency, and urgency, until it be enframed as to spiritual things, retaining neither room nor time for their entertainment. Hence men walk and talk as if the world were everything, when comparatively it is nothing. I would say the biggest mistake in evangelicalism and the subtlety of the devil in it is that we have made the terms justification, covered in chapter 11 of both the 1689 Confession and the Westminster Confession, and regeneration, earth and new birth, which are covered under the effectual call in chapter 10 of both of these confessions. And the result has been, if I was to press somebody with how things are going spiritually for them, my fear would be that even though they're in a state of declension, even though they don't see the absolute importance of John 15, where our Lord says, apart from me, you can do nothing, which means we must be abiding in him. And how do you abide in Christ but the means of grace? Prayer, meditation, and the word. Fellowship with the brethren, maybe listening to very good sermons, reading very good books. In many cases, I'm afraid they're probably not doing well, they will admit, but in their mind, they secretly just hearken back to the testimony that they gave to the church. The church reads these testimonies, and then we allow them to read them publicly. In our case, they read their testimonies, and almost to a person, Everybody gets a yes vote, and they're received into the church. And later on, when their conscience bothers them, you don't seem to have the evidences, you don't seem to have the fruits of regeneration. They'll always hearken back to the testimony and that the church received them. I don't remember anybody that's come forward to the churches that I've been members of for uh, going back 30 years. I don't remember any instances where somebody submitted their testimony and we were to read it that they were voted against when the church recommended them to come into the membership. 
So our churches are full of possibly unconverted members. I know I should exercise the judgment of charity, but if I don't explain the things and what I am seeing, uh, nobody's going to be the better for it. I have too much light now. I've been reading these Puritan and Reform works over 38 years, starting in December 1985. On the subject of sanctification, or the perseverance of the saints, the problem is that we look at what can a Christian do, or what should a Christian not do, and then we label them under the category of legalism, or just Christian liberty. And so, these things are cause and effect. If I do these things, I will not be justified, and since justification is without works, then it's okay for me to do these things. They don't see these things. What we should question is the thing that I'm engaging in, the thing that has so taken up my affections and taken up my thoughts. Would it be better for me by not doing these things, by guarding myself as a way to the end, a way to the end of my continual sanctification? I need to ask myself not whether I have the liberty to do this or not, but how will this affect my prayer life? Can I leave this liberty and go into my time of devotions? And, and will this take off the vigor? Will this take off the peace and joy and the effectual, fervent exercise in my devotions? John Owen goes on to say, when men come with their warmed affections, reeking, smelling, with thoughts of, the things to the performance of or attendance to any spiritual duty, it is very difficult for them, if not impossible, to stir up any grace to a new and vigorous exercise. Unless this plausible advantage which a world has obtained of insinuating itself and its occasions into the minds of men, so as to fill them and possess them, be watched against, inobviated, or curbed, or stopped, so far at least as it may not transform the mind into its own image and likeness, the grace of being spiritually minded which is life and peace cannot be attained nor kept to its due exercise. Nor can we be any of us delivered from this narrative season without a watchful endeavor to keep and preserve our minds in the constant contemplation of things spiritual and heavenly, proceeding from the prevalent adherence of our affections to them. So the biggest thing that is missing in spiritual mindedness and many a professing Christian and I've been surrounded by them for 35, 40 years. It was 40 years ago this April that I first even heard the term Reformed Baptist. It was 40 years ago this coming June that I first stepped into a Reformed Baptist church. I was long under awakening before I had assurance. So I came in in June of 1984. It was September of 1986 when I really had any kind of a strong assurance. But I see these people. You have a coffee time between the Sunday school and the morning service in our case. And you engage people in any kind of a conversation. And there is very, very little spiritual talk. Very little iron sharpening iron exhorting one another daily, lest we be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin, because they revert back to their conversion testimony. They don't really understand the urgency, the absolute necessity of guarding the mind. Things come into the mind, and they're not weighed. 
they're not looked at is how this will affect their devotions to God, their meditation on God, their spiritual affections for God. There's a church that's starting a little bookstore, maybe a couple of shelves. We'll put some good books up there. But we put out a survey. We asked a number of questions. We wanted to engage the people that would be buying them to find what they're interested in. I personally didn't put the survey together. I didn't know what questions were on it. I probably wouldn't have approached it that way. I would have said, as Samuel Miller said in his introduction to William Sprague's work called Lectures to Young People, that when it comes to spiritual material, the supply has to create the demand. There's no natural demand for it. So at the risk of overstocking the supply, that creates a demand. People see these titles. They say, this sounds like it could be helpful for me. And they buy that way. But you make sure that you put out the absolute best materials before them. I don't need to survey them. I've been reading these things long enough. I've interacted with Christian bookstores long enough. I'm David Woolen, who's the president of Heritage Books, a Puritan Theological Seminary, was my pastor. I know a little bit about these things. I know what to put out there that isn't so difficult to read that they cannot possibly get through it. As I said before, even when making a comment on the book nook, that your average adult in our day cannot read a book written for teenagers from the 1830s. Well, so just the other day, we sat down and we started to look through the surveys. The first mistake I would have corrected is, I don't need somebody's name on the survey to know what to choose for the bookstore. But it was a question, are you a reader? Yes or no? And a handful of people put no. Now, I've been a professing Christian for 40 years, and I look at a answer like that. And I've had fellowship with people that I never stood in doubt of their profession, the evidences of their conversion. To a person, I don't know anybody that I had a good feeling about. And granted, we are to know them by their fruits. It's not infallible. But you never stand in doubt of people who prolifically are readers of good devotional literature, good diaries, biographies, and things of this nature, someone may object, well, I only read the Bible. And I respond to that, well, my question is, do you really read the Bible? If you're not uh, reading any kind of other devotional book, if there's no draw to any other kind of book to instruct you, chances are you're probably not reading the Bible either. The following is a selection from the councils given on thoughts on religious experience by Archibald Alexander on how to grow in grace his directions. Set it down. It's a certainty that this will never be attained without vigorous, continued effort. And it must not only be desired and sought, but must be considered more important than all other pursuits, and be pursued in preference to everything which claims your attention, while you determine to be diligent in the use of the appointed means to the end of your sanctification or your growth in grace. You must have it deeply fixed in your mind that nothing can be effected in this work without the aid of the Holy Spirit. Alexander writes, pray constantly and fervently for the influences of the Holy Spirit. No blessing is so particularly and emphatically promised in answer to prayer as this. 
And if you had received this divine gift to be in you, as a well of water springing up to everlasting life, you must not only pray, but you must watch against everything in your heart or life which has a tendency to grieve the Spirit of God. Of what account is it to pray if you indulge evil thoughts and imaginations almost without control, or if you give way to the evil passions of anger, envy, pride, and avarice, or do not bridle your tongue from evil speaking? Learn to be conscientious, that is, obey the dictates of your conscience uniformly. Many are conscientious in some things and not in others. They listen to the monitor within when he directs to important duties. But in smaller manners, they often disregard the voice of conscience and follow present inclination. Such cannot grow in grace. Take more time for the duties of your prayer closet and for looking into the state of your soul. Redeem an hour daily from sleep if you cannot obtain it otherwise. And as the soul concerns are apt to get out of order, and more time is needed for thorough self-examination than an hour a day, set apart not periodically. But as your necessities require days of fasting and humiliation before God. People read that in our day and they say, well, that's legalism, because they're thinking of cause and effect. Not these are the means to the end of my perseverance. So there's no taking up the cross daily, no self-denial. But let me go on to read Archibald Alexander because these things are so helpful. And it's, I believe it is from 1841, though on Grace Jim's, this book is listed from 1844. On these occasions, deal faithfully with yourself. Be in earnest to search out all your secret sins and to repent of them. Renew your covenant with God and form holy resolutions of amendment in the strength of divine grace. And if you find upon self-examination that you have been living in any sinful indulgence, probe the festering wound to the core and confess your fault before God. And do not rest until you have had an application of the blood of sprinkling. You need not ask why you do not grow in grace. Well, there is such a cancer within you. Here it is to be feared as a root of the evil, since indulged, are not thoroughly repented of and forsaken, or the conscience has not been purged effectually and the wound still festers. Come to the fountain open for sin and uncleanness. Bring your case to the great physician and place it in his hands. One of the other errors that is prevalent in our day, not in our typical Reformed Baptist churches, not in the Orthodox Presbyterian churches and other solid Reformed churches, but a Misinterpretation of Romans 7:14 to 25. Is that not Paul speaking of himself as a Christian? And they say that that's Paul pre-conversion. Even David Martin Lloyd Jones in his commentary on the law and of its functions on Romans 7 fell into this mistake. And that's a very, very sad thing because when I'm fellowshipping with somebody for an extended length of time, at any depth, and I don't hear anything about a groaning because of the remains of indwelling sin. I just ask myself, is it well with the soul? How come you don't know anything about this struggle with that which remains within? I once quoted part of the following letter on Facebook, and somebody who is in a good standing in a Reformed Baptist church in another state really had trouble with what was being said here. But I could understand the language of Joseph Philpot, a letter to Mr. Perry, November 8th, 
1837 quote to Joseph Perry, I think I am so well weighted and blasted by temptations and sins that popularity has less charms for me than many. A man full of evil, and that continually, has not much to be proud of and his fear is less God should stop his mouth or cut him down for his presumption. As a farmer, you are not very proud of your diseased lambs, and as a preacher, I cannot be very proud of my diseased prayers and sin-stained sermons. Neither can I boast much of my daily backslidings, hardness of heart, discontent, vileness, and abominable filthiness. At times know not what will become of me, and I fear I shall live and die a reprobate. I find sin has such power over me, and though I call on the Lord again and again for deliverance, I seem to be as weak as ever when temptation comes. Oh, you hideous monster sin. But of course, if you brought in, I love it. I hate it. I want to be delivered from the power of it, and yet I'm not satisfied without drinking down its poison sweets. It is my hourly companion and my daily curse, the breath of my soul and the cause of my groans, my incentive to prayer and my hinderer of it. That made a Savior suffer, it makes a Savior precious. Despoils every pleasure and adds a sting to every pain. It fits a soul for heaven and ripens a soul for hell. Friend Joseph, can you make out my riddle? Is your heart like my heart? Said one of old, and come up into my chariot. We shall quarrel by the way, less as in water face answers to face. So does the heart of man to man, end quote. Let me quote Alexander White. Some of his comments on the Holy War. Emmanuel addressing the inhabitants of Mansoul. And let me preface it by saying this same professing Christian had a lot of trouble with his kind of language as well, and yet he was aspiring to the ministry. Eventually he removed his name from consideration, but he had preached in front of our church before, and, I must say, to some effect, though there always seemed to be somewhat of an edge on his sermons, like he appeared to be angry. Nevertheless, I never suspected him until I saw his reactions to what I'm about to read and other things. I'm reading parts of chapter 28 from Alexander White's Holy War Characters, Emmanuel's Last Charge to Mansoul Concerning the Remainders of Sin in the Regenerate. There are many things in Emmanuel's Last Charge to Mansoul, but by far the best thing is the answer that he himself dare supplies to this deep and difficult question. To this question, namely, why original sin is still left to rage in the truly regenerate. We would say why the remains of sin, called indwelling sin, is left to rage in the truly regenerate. Why does our Lord not wholly extirpate sin in our regeneration? What can his reason be for leaving their original sin to dwell in his best saints till the day of their death? For, to use his own sad words about sin in his last charge, nothing hurts us but sin. So, do you ask of me, Emmanuel, addressing the inhabitants, why I and my father have seen it good to allow the dregs of all your sinfulness still to corrupt and to rot in your heart? Do you ask why amid so much in you that is regenerate, there is still so much in you that is unregenerate? Why? while you are without controversy under grace, and dwelling sin still so festers and so breaks out in you. Do ask that. Then attend, and before I go away to come again, I will try to tell you if indeed you are able and willing to bear it. Well then, be silent while I tell you what 
I have left of all your original sin in you, to tempt you, to try you, to humble you, and to thrust day and night upon you what is still remaining in your heart, to humble you, take knowledge, take warning, and take forethought, to make you humble and keep you humble, to hide pride from you and to lay you all the days on earth in the dust of death. I tell you this day that in all your past life I have ordered and administered all my providences towards you to humble you and to prove you, and to make you dust and ashes in your own eyes, and I go away to carry on from heaven this same intention of my Father and mine towards you. We shall try you as silver is tried. Emmanuel says, I have loved you with an everlasting love, and it is to everlasting life that I am leading you, and you must be led through fire and through water. If I am to lead you to heaven at last, I shall have to utterly kill all self-love out of your heart, and to plant all humility in its place. Many and dreadful discoveries shall I have to make of you, of your profane and inhuman self-love and selfishness. Words will fail you to confess all your selfishness and your most penitent prayer, your towering pride of heart also, and your so contemptible vanity. As for your vanity, I shall so overrule it, that double-minded men about you shall make you, in your vanity, their sport, their jest, and their prey. And I shall not leave you, nor discharge myself of my work within you, till I see you loathing yourself, and hating yourself, and gnashing your teeth at yourself for your envy of your brother, your envy concerning his house, his wife, and his manservant. You shall find something in you that shall allow you to see your enemy prosper but not your friend, something that shall keep you from your sleep because of his talents, his name, his income, and his place, which I have given him above you, beside you, and always in your sight. It will be something also that shall make his sickness, his decay, his defamation, and his death sweet to you, and his prosperity and return to life bitter to you. You shall have to confess something in yourself, whatever its nature and whatever its name, Something that shall make you miserable at good news and glad and enlarged and full of life at evil tidings. He means against your neighbor. It will be something also that shall give a long life in your evil heart to anger and to resentment and to retaliation and to revenge. For after years and years you shall still have it in your heart to hate and to hurt that man in his house. Because long ago he left your side, your booth, and the market, your party, and the state, and the church, and your religion. As I live, swore Emmanuel, standing up on the step of his ascending chariot, I shall show you yourself. I shall show you what an unclean heart is, and how wicked it still is. He's talking about the remains of indwelling sin. I shall teach to you what all true saints shudder at when they are let see the plague of their own hearts. I shall show you as I live how full of pride and hate and envy and ill will a regenerate heart can be and how a true-born man of God may still love evil and hate good, may still rejoice in iniquity and pine under the truth. I shall show you also what you will not as yet believe, how your best friend cannot trust his good name with you. Such a sweet morsel to you shall be the moat in his eye, and a spot in his praise. Yes, I shall show you that I did not die on the cross for nothing when I died for you, when I went out to Calvary, a shame and a spitting, an outcast and a curse for you, you shall yet arise up and fall down in your sin and shall justify all my thorns and nails and spears and the last drop of my blood for you. Yea, 
Ye shall remember all the ways which the Lord your God led you these forty years in the wilderness, to humble you, and to prove you, and to know what is in your heart, and whether you would keep his commandments or not. In quote, Alexander White, Bunyan Characters, Third Series, The Holy War, Emmanuel Addresses, The Inhabitants of Mansoul. Going on to the next subject, professing Christians in our day, and this is what I perceive, and I'd love to be corrected if I'm wrong, don't take the mortification of indwelling sin seriously. The most they know about John Owen is a meme that they have read on Facebook, which they parrot to every other person as if they had never seen it before, and the meme is, be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. There is no context. There is no remedy. It's just a meme on Facebook. And that's all of John Owen they're exposed to, or Jonathan Edwards, or others that they quote for the same reasons. What's really interesting about John Owen's treatise on indwelling sin is the warnings to those who he is addressing at the end of the first couple of chapters, and I'll read a couple of those paragraphs. This is at the end of chapter 1. Awake, therefore, all of you, in whose hearts is anything of the ways of God, your enemy is not only upon you, as I'm Samson of old, but it's also in you. He is at work by ways of force and craft, as we shall see. Would you not dishonor God in his gospel? Would you not scandalize the saints in ways of God? Would you not wound your conscience and endanger your souls? Would you not grieve the good and holy spirit of God, the author of all your comforts? Would you keep your garments undefiled and escape the woeful temptations and pollutions of the days in which we live? Would you be preserved from the number of the apostates in these latter days? Then awake to the consideration of this cursed enemy, which is the spring of all these and innumerable other evils, is also of the ruin of all the souls that perish in the world. Talking about indwelling sin. The need to know it, to feel it, and to aim to mortify it. The next paragraph is from chapter 2 of the same work. John Owen writes, Upon this one hinge of finding out and experiencing the power and the efficacy of this law of sin turns the whole course over lies. Ignorance of it breeds senselessness, carelessness, sloth, security, and spiritual pride, all which a Lord's soul abhors. Eruptions into great open conscience, wasting scandalous sins are from a lack of a due spiritual consideration of this law. Inquire then, how is it with your souls? What do you find of this law of indwelling sin? What experience have you of its power and efficacy? Do you find it dwelling in you, always present with you, exciting itself for putting forth its poison with easiness and facility at all times, in all your spiritual duties, when you would do good? What humiliation, what self-abasement, what intenseness in prayer, what diligence, what watchfulness does this call for at your hands? What spiritual wisdom do you stand in need of? What supplies of grace, what assistance of the Holy Spirit will be there also discovered? I fear we have in few of us a diligence proportionable to our danger. End quote. The next mistake many of us make in our growth and grace is we don't understand the absolute necessity of the Spirit of Christ to assist us in this work. What it means to abide in Him, John 15. Starting with the freeness of His grace so that we don't venture into antinomianism on the one hand, legalism on the other. Archibald Alexander says in the same chapter, 
from thoughts on religious experience, which I have been reading, there is a defect in our belief of the freeness of divine grace to exercise unshaken confidence in the doctrine of gratuitous pardon. It's one of the most difficult things in the world, and to preach this doctrine fully without verging toward antinomianism is no easy task, and is therefore seldom done. But Christians cannot but be lean and feeble when deprived of the proper nutriment. It is by faith that the spiritual life is made to grow, and the doctrine of free grace without any mixture of human merit is the only true object of our faith. Christians are too much inclined to depend upon themselves and not to derive their life entirely from Christ. There is a spurious legal religion which may flourish without the practical belief in the absolute freeness of divine grace but it possesses none of the characteristics of the Christian life. It is found to exist in the rankest growth, in systems of religion which are utterly false. But even when the true doctrine is acknowledged in theory, often it is not practically felt and acted on. The new convert lives upon his frames, rather than on Christ, and the older Christian still is found struggling in his own strength and failing in his expectations of success. He becomes discouraged at first and then he sinks into a gloomy despondency, or becomes in a measure careless, and then the spirit of the world comes in with resistless force. Here, I am persuaded, is the root of all evil, and until religious teachers inculcate clearly, fully, and practically the grace of God as manifested in the gospel, we shall have no vigorous growth of piety among professing Christians. We must be, as it were, identified with Christ, crucified with him, and living by him and in him by faith, or rather have Christ living in us. The covenant of grace must be more clearly and repeatedly expounded in all of its rich plenitude of mercy and in all of its absolute freeness, End quote. The next problem that I see in growth in grace in many professing Christians in our day is because secretly, unbeknownst to them, they are self-deceived. They are and have been for some time in a state of spiritual declension. Let me read Archibald Alexander upon what that looks like before I comment on it. But this is a reason why books like Dane Ortland's Gentle and Lowly was such a popular book a couple of years ago because a professing Christian, his conscience bothering him that he is in a state of declension, probably living a life without secret prayer, and yet consistent with his false peace, so that his conscience doesn't completely erode him and convince him that he is still a hypocrite. So they want to cover it up with a band-aid of consolation and not probe the festering wound to the core. My brethren, please hear my heart. I'm not trying to be censorious here. I'm actually very, very much afraid, but let me describe the condition and then talk about the remedy for it. Under the chapter of Thoughts on Religious Experience, chapter 14, it's the title, Backsliding and the Restoration of the Backslider, and he says there is a perpetual and there is a temporary backsliding. Quote, when we speak of backsliding, we commonly mean those sad departures of real Christians from God, which are so common and soften so injurious to the cause of religion. These cases are so common that some have thought that all Christians have their seasons of backsliding when they have left to first love and lost the sweet relish of divine things and were excluded from intimate communion with God. But however common backsliding may have been among Christians, there is no foundation for the opinion 
that it is common to all. We don't find any such declension in the experience of Paul or the Apostle John. And in the biographies of some modern saints, we find no such sad declension. There is no doubt all professing Christians experience short seasons of comparative spiritual coldness and insensibility to spiritual things. And they who live near to God have not always equal light and life and comfort in the divine life. Those fluctuations of feeling which are so common are not included in the idea of a state of backsliding. This occurs when the Christian is gradually let off from close walking with God. He loses a lively sense of divine things, becomes too much attached to the world, and too much occupied with secular concerns, until at length the keeping of the heart is neglected, closet duties are omitted. Now, closet duties is entering into your prayer closet. That could be a room, some private place. But this type of secret prayer is omitted. And I want to say that could be a fatal sign. Could be it's omitted because the innate enmity of the heart hasn't been changed because there is no regeneration. But this is talking about a backsliding actual Christian. And we need to distinguish between the two. Lest you take a hypocrite who is living a life void of secret prayer and you put a band-aid on it to relieve his conscience, make him feel better. He says, closet duties are omitted or slightly performed. Zeal for the advancement of religion is quenched and many things once rejected by a sensitive conscience are now indulged and defended. All this may take place and continue long before the person is aware of his danger or acknowledges that there has been any serious departure from God. The forms of religion may still be kept up and open sin avoided, but more commonly backsliders fall into some evil habits. They are evidently too much conformed to the world and often go too far in participating in the pleasures and amusements of the world. And too often there is an indulgence in known secret sin into which they are gradually led and on account of which they experience frequent compunction and make solemn resolutions to avoid it in the future. But when the hour of temptation comes, they are overcome again and again, and thus they live a miserable life, enslaved by some sin over which, though they sometimes struggle very hard, they just can't seem to get the victory. There is in nature no more inconsistent thing than a backsliding Christian. Looking at one side of his character, he seems to have sincere penitential feelings and is hard to be right in his purpose and aims. But look at the other side and he seems to be carnal, sold under sin. A wretched man, how he frithes, often in anguish and groans for deliverance. But he is like Samson, shorn of its locks. His strength has departed and he is not able to rise and go forth at liberty as he was in former times. All backsliders are not alike. Some are asleep. But the one now described is in a state of almost perpetual conflict, which keeps him wide awake. Sometimes when his pious feelings are lively, he cannot but hope that he loves God and hates sin, and then he is encouraged. But oh, when sin prevails against him and he is led away captive, he cannot think that he is a true Christian. Is it possible that one who is thus overcome can have in him any principle of piety? Sometimes he gives up all hope and concludes that he was deceived and ever thinking himself converted. But then again, when he fails a broken and a contrite heart and an ardent breathing and groaning after deliverance, he cannot but conclude that there is some principle above mere nature operating within him, end quote. And I would say that person is a lot safer if, on the other hand, he is asleep and is, quote, in a state of declension 
And then he's somewhat alarmed at it. He knows he has too much light to know that this is a healthy spiritual condition. But what does he do? A little slumber, a little of the folding of the hands to sleep. And he takes a book, which could be, in its right context, very helpful, like Gentle and Lonely by Dane Ortland. But he slaps it as a band-aid so that he could feel better and is continued being asleep in his continual state of spiritual declension, if it's declension at all and not an evidence that he has never been brought forth from death unto life, and so he has no new affections in him. He has no enlightened mind, no change in his convictions, and no real heart, no real affections for spiritual duty. So let me quote John Owen on this, skimming over the indwelling sin instead of probing the festering wound to the core. John Owen, the mortification of sin in believers. He says, sin must be hated because it is sin, not just because it is disturbing your conscience. There are a couple of main reasons that attempts to kill certain sins are in vain unless we try to kill all sins in our lives. The first reason is that any kind of selective mortification is a result of a corrupt motive of hating sin because it is disturbing you not because it is evil in itself and dishonoring to God. This will never yield good results. The true and acceptable principles for killing sin will be clarified and emphasized later. Hatred of sin and sin not only is disturbing and upsetting habit in comprehending the love of Christ as it is revealed on the cross as the true and most basic motivation for all true spiritual mortification of sin. So John Owen talks about the mortification of sin out of self-love. Quote, now, now certainly the selective mortification I speak of comes from self-love. You resolve with all diligence and earnestness to kill some particular sin. But why? You do so because it bothers you. It has taken away your peace. It fills your heart with sorrow, trouble, and fear. You have no rest because of it. If you actually hated sin as sin, in every evil way to disturb your soul, you would be no less watchful against everything that grieves and disturbs the Spirit of God. Evidently, you fight against sin merely because of the trouble it causes you. If your conscience would not bother you about it, you would leave it alone. If it did not bother you, you would not bother it. Now, do you really think that God will put up with such a hypocritical approach? Do you not think that the Spirit will testify to the treachery and falsehood of your spirit in this? Do you think he will relieve you of what troubles you so much so that you will be free to pursue other things that grieve him just as much? No, God says. If he could be rid of this sinful desire, I would never hear from him again. I will let him wrestle with it, or he will be lost. No one should presume to accomplish his own work that is unwilling to do God's work. God's work consists in universal obedience. To be freed from the present problem is our own work. That is why the Apostle says, Cleanse yourselves from every defilement of body, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. If we hope to do anything, we must do all things, and we must watch over every evil and perform every duty. So let me end this podcast with this quote on growth and grace by Archibald Alexander because it's so helpful and it's in a more modern English, at least in John Owen. Another thing which prevents growth in grace is that Christians do not make their obedience to Christ comprehend every other object of their pursuit. Their Christianity is too much a separate thing, and they pursue their worldly business and another spirit. They try to unite the service of God and money, 
Their minds are divided and often distracted with earthly cares and desires which interfere with their service of God, whereas they should have but one object to pursue it, and all that they do and seek should be in subordination to this. Everything should be done for God and to God, whether they eat or drink. They should do all to his glory. It's a plowing and sowing of the wicked is sin, because done without regard to God and his glory. So the secular employments and pursuits of the pious shall be all consecrated and become a part of their religion. Thus they would serve God in the field and in the shop, and buying and selling and getting gain. All would be for God. Thus, their earthly labors would prove no hindrance to their progress in piety. And possessing an undivided mind, having a single object to pursue, they could not but grow in grace. Daily, he whose eye is single shall have his whole body full of light. And I again would recommend the grace and duty of being spiritually minded, because John Owen, unlike very few, really gets to the core of the manner, and shows that allowing ourselves in thoughts on vain things is inconsistent with spiritual mindedness, and we don't quite understand that this is what we are made for. This is our testing grounds. This is a day of our probation. This day is coming to an end, and all things will be declared, whether we were building our house on the sand or on a good foundation on the rock. Anyway, thank you for tuning into this. This is a little bit different kind of a podcast, but I needed to share my observations because they are my fears, and because of iniquity abounding around us, and we need to be those of Ezekiel 9.4, who sigh and cry for the abominations in the land. I do believe that judgment is coming. I don't know what that's going to look like. But many of us, very many of us, myself included, we're going to be very, very inconvenienced. And my fear is, as I posted on Facebook, that if even a mild judgment, nothing like what the Puritans and the inhabitants of England experienced in 1665 with the Great Plague of London and 1666 with the Fire of London. But even if a mild judgment comes upon your average affluent American, your average person, even a professing Christian, would be so inconvenienced by the day two of not being able to use her cell phone, there is no signal not having any electricity because the electrical grid has been taken down, not having the ability to get hold of his finances because all of this stuff is online, and our way to come at it easily has been circumvented, that within two days, your average, even professing Christian in our day, I'm afraid, would be in despair. And I fear for myself, and therefore I'm trying to look at things in that light at least so that I would have joy and peace and assurance, let alone have any kind of a martyr's fortitude of heart in the midst of suffering. Brethren were not prepared to suffer, and that's why I narrated John Flavel's preparation for suffering, and it is available on Sermon Audio. Thank you for tuning in to the Narrated Puritan Podcast.